This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. This morning, we are finishing up what has been an eight-part series that we've been in called You Asked For It. And uh, we're going to be bringing this uh, plane in for a landing today. I get the privilege of, of doing that. But my hope is that you have really enjoyed this series, that you've uh, been helped, you've been encouraged, uh, maybe you've learned something along the way, because I know I have. And so, anyways, I hope you have as well. And we're going to be finishing with this question this morning, taking a look at it. This was actually one of the first questions that we received as we were uh, getting submissions, and, and here it is. It's this. How can I become a strong Christian with no time to read the Bible or do anything? How can I do that? How can I become a strong Christian with no time to read the Bible or do anything? Now, I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear that question, but I know what came to my mind. And as I thought about it, you know, one of the first things that I began to wonder about was, I wonder, what if I was to walk into my doctor's office up in Port Washington? And I was to walk up to him, and I'd say, listen, doc, I want to be really healthy, but I don't have time to eat right or exercise. What can you do for me? Right? What can you do for me? What is he, how is he going to respond? Right? I mean, maybe he's going to, you know, you know, try to convince me that I'm wrong that my thinking is messed up here. Uh, maybe he's going to try to give me some, you know, kind of, you know, just very little time commitment kind of things, like, you know, eat that multivitamin in the morning, you know, use the standing desk at work, right? Maybe he'd try to just convince me to avoid the things that would be really detrimental to my health, like that second slice of triple chocolate cheesecake from the Cheesecake Factory, right? Ladies, maybe, maybe, you know, he would try to convince, you know, us to, you know, avoid that venti whole milk praline latte, right? Maybe he'd just try to convince me not to have that triple patty bacon cheeseburger or the steak at the steak fry. I don't know, you know, right? What, I don't know what he would try to do to try to convince us maybe just to try to scrape by for a few more years. But at some level, ultimately... My guess is that that doctor would be wondering the same question that you're thinking right now. Of John, I'm not so sure that you really want to be healthy, right? I mean, if you don't have time to, to do anything for your health, do you really want to be healthy or do you just want to get by? And with our question this morning of how can I be a strong Christian with no time to read the Bible or do anything, I believe that the Bible would respond by asking us a similar question. Do you really want to be a strong Christian? I mean, if you don't have any time here to invest in this, do you really want to be a strong Christian or do you just want to get by? I mean, because as a pastor, I can suggest a couple of, you know, 60-second uh, Christian multivitamins, if you will. I can tell you, you know, a couple of things to really avoid that would be detrimental to 
your faith. But what I'm wondering is whether or not you really want to be a strong Christian. Now, I have no doubt uh, that this question, it was just submitted by an honest person, right? We're just asking an honest question here, saying, listen, pastor, okay, my life is really busy. It's, you don't even know how busy it is. I've got like four kids, you know, and they're moving all the time. It's busy. And by the way, I hate reading. I'm not a fan. So let's be realistic here, right? And I think plenty of us have felt that way before. And after all, doesn't this idea, by the way, of a strong, or we'll say a mature Christian, always kind of seem a little bit nebulous, like, uh, like that everybody kind of has their own, you know, little set of standards, right, that qualifies somebody as eventually being a mature Christian. In fact, as I've heard, you know, all these different standards, I don't know what your experience has been, but as I've heard them, it seems like the only thing that sounds consistent between them is it's going to take a lot of time. And it's going to be a lot of work. And if I want to reach towards this hazy idea of being a mature Christian, I'm going to be busy, right? Seems to be the only thing consistent. Ever felt that way hearing some of the encouragements and the calls? I think many of us, in one way or another, we can relate to this question or the frustrations around it. And so this morning... I want us to take a little bit of the mystery out of what it means to be a mature Christian. And for us to understand what is the, what's the underlying principle here that's to guide our, our Christian growth to becoming mature. Becoming mature. I want you to let you know that if you really sink your teeth into what we're talking about this morning, that it can revolutionize your walk with Christ. It can change the way that you pursue him. Changes the way that you're growing. So I want us to take a look at this question. I want us to look at it from the Gospel of John. Uh, The Gospel of John is a uh, first-hand account of Jesus' life by the person whose name it bears, the Apostle John. And in chapter 13, we have this amazing scene that begins to unfold. Jesus has come to the end of his time with his 12 closest followers, the 12 disciples. And they're celebrating the Passover supper in a room together. And this is shortly before uh, that Jesus is going to be betrayed uh, by one of his 12 followers, Judas Iscariot. And he's, uh, Jesus is, is, is well aware of this. He knows that his time is coming to an end. And that through his, his death, his burial his resurrection, that he's going to return to his heavenly father. And so he starts explaining all of this to the disciples, and it is way over their heads, right? They would be feeling the same thing that we would be feeling in that room as they turn and they look at each other and go, do you understand the words that are coming out of his mouth? I'm not so sure I do. Right? It's littered with questions from them trying to understand what Jesus is saying. But in the midst of this explaining of these things, that Jesus knows, by the way, he knows full well that they are not going to really understand this until they have seen it, until after it's taken place. But he does something in the midst of this 
something that none of them can misunderstand. Something that none of them misses. And so it says in the beginning of chapter 13, that as Jesus knows that he's returning to the Father, that filled with love for his disciples, that he stands up during the supper, and he comes around and he washes the disciples' grimy feet. I inserted the word grimy. But he washes their feet, including the feet of Judas Iscariot. He washes his feet too. And after he's finished, he stands back up. He sits back down with his disciples in shock. And he says that he's given them an example to follow of how to love one another. So he goes on in verse 34 and he says this. A new commandment, underline that, I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus has spoken this similar commandment, by the way, in different places in his teaching to love God and to love others, right? Hear this in Matthew, hear this in Mark, right? Jesus has spoken this similar kind of commandment, what sometimes is referred to as, as the great commandment. What's different here, though, is that he sets up his kind of love. The love that he just finished displaying. Love for an enemy like Judas Iscariot. Love as a servant of everyone else. Love that was sacrificial. Love that was humble. He sets up his kind of love for them as the new standard of that commandment. He's saying, if you're living like that, that people around you, if you're loving other people like that, people are going to actually recognize that you're one of my followers. That you you are actually going to be recognized as one of my disciples. Now take note of this here, because this is where we begin to start answering our question. What is a mature follower of Christ? Simply put, a mature Christian is someone who, can, who you can tell is like Christ based on their love for others. That's what that term means, right? That the sign that something has matured is that you can recognize it for what it's supposed to be. I remember the first time uh, Del and I ever bought a house. I was in charge of all these garden beds, and I know nothing about gardening. I'm coming out there, and I'm looking at these plants that are coming up, and I can't tell a weed from a flower. <laughs> so what I have to do? I had to wait. I had to wait for them to grow, for them to mature, so I could rec- kind of recognize them, right? I don't know how many flowers we had left after I was done, but, you know, right? I had to recognize. I had to wait till they matured so that I could tell what they were supposed to be. In the case of a Christian, which is someone who is supposed to be like Christ, a follower of his, somebody who has learned his ways, a mature Christian has grown to the point that you can tell that they are like Christ, specifically 
in their love for one another. That's the earmark of being a mature Christian. This new commandment, then, that he sets up here in chapter, it sets things up for in chapter 14, verse 15, where he says this. He says, if you love me, you will keep my what? My commandments. What was his commandment? To love one another in the same way that he loved. This is the principle that Jesus is teaching here. It's simple and it's profound. If you want to be a mature follower of Christ, it starts not with action, but with love. That out of love for him, we will love others and we will keep his commands. And when he goes on here to say, that is utterly mind-blowing, you can just picture the disciples' minds melting as he leads into this next part. And he says something that I think is, is harder for us to grasp, but a reality for each person who has accepted Christ, who is a follower of his. And today we're barely going to scratch the, the surface of this aspect, but Jesus starts explaining this idea of how things are going to work then as he leaves. Verse 16, he says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, or advocate, to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. We'll come back to that in a moment. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. In a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live, as a reference to his resurrection. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Jesus here, in this mind-blowing statement, paints a picture, a picture of a close, personal relationship with him after he leaves. What he's saying in this is that you and I are more than flesh and blood. And that after he leaves, that through the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, that he will come to each of his followers even after he's returned to heaven. And in this way, his presence will make a home in them. In theology, we call this the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is saying that this is how he's going to be with them in the future. This creates the, the opportunity through this for an intimate, close, personal relationship with him. And he goes on to then explain what that would look like. In verse 25, he says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. Right? Connect the dots with obedience here. And bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Connecting the dot with Scripture. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And then he finishes with verse 28. He says, You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. 
I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but, catch this, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Did you catch it? Do you see the connections in here? That Jesus has been obedient to God the Father out of love for him, and now he will return to enjoying his presence. And that his example to us is the same. That as we obey him out of love for him, we get to enjoy his presence. See, this is the underlining principle of a mature follower of Jesus Christ, that maturity is the result of obedience driven by love. Maturity, Christian maturity, is the result of obedience that's driven by love. It's love that is meant to drive our obedience that leads us to being closer, more intimate with God. That's what underpins a mature Christian. This is the principle that governs Christian growth, and it will help answer our question. Let's walk through it first. Let's think about love. Jesus uses the word love here ten times in these verses. And although Jesus connects the idea of obedience to love, he does not say that what? That obedience and love are the same thing. He doesn't say that. No, instead, what he puts out here is that love is more than simply what we do. It's our affection. It's our desire. It's what we long for. Our love is just what we want to be with. This is where maturity begins. If you've been here a while, you've, you've probably heard Pastor Brian say this line before, that the gospel is not, I obey, therefore I'm accepted, but I'm accepted, and so out of gratitude, I obey. Our motivation for obedience as we mature in Christ is built on that foundation of grateful love. That his love for me has led to a love for him. And that out of that love, I now love others. So if we think about our question this morning, of how can I become a strong or a mature Christian with no time to read the Bible or do anything, we need to first see that maturity doesn't begin with obedience. It begins, it doesn't begin with reading, by the way. It begins with love. And so the question I want you to consider for yourself this morning is this. Do you have a longing for Jesus? Do you have a longing to be with him? Uh, a week ago, my son Judah and I, we took our first camping trip together. And we went off to Kettle Moraine uh, State Park uh, just for a, a one-night, overnight trip. And if you've ever gone camping with a six-year-old, you know what this is like, right? You get there, you pitch the tent, you take the hike, you go to the playground, and you jump in the lake for 45 minutes, build a campfire, and you're done. The next morning, it's cold Pop-Tarts, right? Dad issued, and on your way home. It's nothing to write home about. A couple hours later, we were at uh, my in-laws, and uh, Judah's granddad was asking him questions about how the camping trip went, right? Where'd you go? 
what you did, what you ate, just the usual. And then he goes, and Judah, what was your favorite part? And I'm in the next room listening, and uh, he doesn't know I'm there. And so my ears perk up, of course. And Judah goes, well, my favorite part was just being with my dad. Ah, right? Ah! That's love. That's love. It's that longing that says, I just want to spend time with you. I just want to be with you. I just want to talk to you. That's the idea of love in this text that leads us to wanting to obey Christ's commands. To wanting, to desiring that close presence that he describes here. That close, intimate relationship with Christ. That if you love me, you obey my commands. Which leads us to our next part. Obedience. Obedience. Look back at the text with me. Verse 23 and 24. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but my Father's who sent me. Obedience, it's driven by love. You know, as you read about Jesus' life, one of the great surprises we oftentimes come across is that the most frequent problems that Jesus has is with a group of people that had carefully charted out 613, 613 actions that a strong, mature follower of God was supposed to do, was supposed to obey. It's a group called the Pharisees and Scribes. And Jesus' consistent critique of them is this. You missed the point. You missed the point. That you might look great on the outside, you might have a spotless record, you may have read the Bible, that is the Old Testament Scriptures, from start to finish, but you have completely missed that their obedience was neither driven by love nor loving in its actions. But sadly, I think we have so often also missed the point. It's why this idea of being close, intimate friends with God seems foreign to us. It's why maturity seems to elude us. We fail to connect the dots that many times our obedience is just out of begrudging. And that our loving of others is not a Christ-like kind of love. It's a worldly one. So what we've been intended to do, what we have tended to do, is the same thing. We've rendered Christian maturity down to a list of actions that we can measure. But instead of 613, our tendency has been to try to get the list to being as sure as we possibly can. We have our mental checklist, right? We're just human beings. It's how, we, it's how we do things. We have our mental checklist. Do, do we have our life together? Check. Is our family together? Mostly check, right? Do we read the Bible? Occasionally checked. 
Do we go to church? Twice a month, that counts. Check, right? We look at the outside of our life, and we think if we have X, Y, and Z, then we're a mature Christian. If we've done that, we're good to go. And so the only difference between our mindset and the mindset of the Pharisees is in the amount of time and the amount of resources. Time and amounts are the only difference. And sure, right? In one sense, this all makes sense. I mean, lists aren't bad. There's lists there in the Bible of things that we're to obey. The difference is whether or not our obedience is driven by love for God or driven by something else. Is it pride? Is it manipulation? Is it religion? What's driving us? The result, the natural result of keeping Jesus' commands out of love for one another, out of love for him, it's intimacy with him. It's his presence. It's enjoying its maturity. Not in the sense of a formula here, but in the sense of the reality that God longs for us. And as we turn in love and pursue him, we naturally enjoy his presence. So now, if we've come to that point of saying that we believe in Jesus and we've got this idea of love, that we have a personal relationship with him, then yes, at some point, there should be a natural change of our behavior and for the better, right? That our actions should begin to conform to those of Christ Jesus. As one author puts it, the instructions from our Lord were not given to make us better theologians, but better people. A mature Christian isn't doing nothing, right? It's, it's not that we are just simply sitting on our hind quarters. We're active, in particular, in the area of loving others as Jesus loved them. And so it's safe to say that if you can look at your life, or if others can look at your life, and they can't see any evidence that you are loving people like Jesus loved them, then you are not a mature follower of Christ. Now, that does not mean that you are not a follower of Christ. But a mature follower is marked, is recognizable that they are loving others like Jesus. As one author puts it, our obedience merits us nothing, right? Everything is still by grace. But our obedience is an essential affirmation of our love for Jesus. It is by Jesus' obedience that we are saved. It is by our obedience, compelled by love for Christ, that we express our gratitude for so great a salvation. Now think back to our question. How can I become a strong Christian with no time to read the Bible or do anything? Well, to be frank, you can't. You can't. If you don't have time to invest in obeying Christ, you will never mature to being like him. And by the way, loving people the way that Jesus loved them, it's costly. It's time-consuming. It's hard, isn't it? You bet. And as far as the part in the question about reading the Bible, 
except for the last 200 years, very few people have ever had the opportunity to read the Bible. Now, the reverse is true. Everybody has, has, has the opportunity to read the Bible, almost, and nobody reads it. Very few read it. And I realize that, you know, reading, you know, in general, or reading the Bible, that might not be your favorite pastime, okay? I remember growing up, I did not enjoy reading it. Uh, as it turns out, thankfully, it's kind of like acquiring the taste for coffee. It takes a while to develop, but once you do, every morning you've got to have it, right? A whole. The Bible, though here, its role that it plays is it helps to stir up and inform our love for God and our love for others. It teaches us what to obey and how to obey it. That's the role that it plays in our maturing. It helps to guide us as we mature as a follower of Jesus. So friends, the question, and I want to invite you with this, is to help get a clearer picture of where you're at in your walk with God. And let's ask yourself this, is my life marked by obedience to Jesus' command of loving others as he loved? Is my life marked by obedience to Jesus' command of loving others as he loved? Are all the things that you do in your walk with God, are they, are they done out of loving submission? Is your life marked by that? Or do you just do them? The old movie, uh, Fiddler on a Roof, you have this scene where, where Tevye, who's a, a large Jewish father, around 1910, he's talking to his wife, Golda, a very you know, stoic woman in a traditional arranged marriage of 25 years. Tevye comes into the room and he asks her, Golda, do you love me? And she says, do I what? You're upset. Go inside. Lay down. Maybe it's indigestion. But Tevye persists, and he says, Golda, I'm asking you a question. Do you love me? She goes, you're a fool. He says, I know. But do you love me? She says, do I love you? For 25 years, I've washed your clothes, cooked your meals, cleaned your house, given you children, milked the cow. After 25 years, you want to talk about love now. I'm your wife. Tevye says, I know. But do you love me? She thinks, do I love him? For 25 years I've lived with him, fought with him, starved with him. For 25 years my bed is his. If that's not love, what is? So Tevye smiles and says, you do love me. <laughs> I suppose I do. Friends, this morning, maybe God is asking you a question. As we finish up this series of you asked for it. Maybe God this morning has a question for you. Maybe he's looking at you and he's saying, do you love me? After all these years, after everything that's happened, do you love me? Because friend, whether we're just now getting this after 25 years or 25 days, 
in our relationship with God. Our obedience is to be driven by love. And that's what results in Christian maturity. So let's let that truth forever influence our walk with Christ and our obedience to him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, would you fan the flame this morning of our love for you? May you grow us up. Help us to catch a greater and greater glimpse of your love for us that leads to our love for you, that leads to our love for one another. May it be bright. May we mature in it. May we grow. And may the world recognize that we are your followers as they see our love for one another. Would you grow this, Lord? Would we be able to see us become a congregation full of mature believers who have a deep-seated love for you and pour out their love on one another? Would you move, Father? Would you do that in our hearts? We love you.